be here with you today. Uh, many of you know that years ago I was a youth pastor out at Sunrise Baptist out in the county, and uh, John Aldrich was uh, my senior pastor, uh, John who came here after that to be associate. So I, I feel like this is family. I've, been, I've spoken here a few times before, and uh, it's just great to be here with you. There's a, there's a spirit of reverence in the room. Uh, I've spoken at churches across the country, and, and your worship team is really solid, too. It's, they're drawing you to the presence of the Lord, so I want to put in a good word for them as well, and it's just great to be here with you. Uh, my wife uh, works at Hillcrest as their arts coordinator, so she is there this morning. Uh, my son is working at Fur Creek this summer, so he's uh, got some responsibilities there this summer. But my uh, oldest daughter, Addie, is here, and my youngest daughter, Amy, are here, so good to see them as well. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll get into the Word. God, we want to say, hallowed is your name. Holy is your name. We want to focus our attention on you this morning, the one that we've come to love. Father, I pray for blessing over this church, blessing over this people. Father, we know that you love them deeply. And I pray this morning that we would all be drawn closer to you by the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, by the fellowship of people around us, Lord. Father, there is somebody here today who needs to hear this message. Father, there's somebody here online who needs to hear this message. I pray our hearts would be open to your word, your good and perfect word. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. True story. 1926, Ralston, Louisiana. A baby boy is born by the name of Joseph Quitman Johnson, Jr. And he lived such an interesting life that I actually wrote a book about him called A Bright and Blinding Sun. It's just out now. Joseph, he had a hard time almost from moment one in his life. The guiding principles of his life took a long time to establish. When he was a youth, it was the height of the Great Depression. Money was scarce. Two more children were born into the family, and the family soon moved to the big city, Memphis, Tennessee. Both the parents were out of work, and the father couldn't find a job, so he left the family and went to look for work in Texas, and he never returned. Young Joe was soon without a biological father living in the family. Joe's mother was a schoolteacher. She couldn't find work either. Finally, at last, she got a job sewing flower sacks into dresses for $10 a week. Money was tight. And young Joe found himself the man of the family. He carried groceries for neighbors for a dime or sometimes a nickel. He hauled government food from the city center to his home so the family could have enough to eat. He scrounged coal from the coal yard to heat their tiny house in winter months. He tried to go to school. Soon enough, the mother uh, hooked up with uh, an out-of-work barkeep by the name of Mr. Jake. Mr. Jake, a good enough guy, but he couldn't find work, and so he spent most of his days lounging on the couch in their tiny shotgun shack. And that 
worried young Joe because there was another mouth to feed and he was the man of the family. So tension rose in the family and tension rose and tension rose and tension rose and finally Joe decided maybe his family would be better off without him. So he decided to run away. Late one night, he stole down to the railway yard. He jumped aboard a boxcar bound for Texas, he hoped. He was going to try and find his father. And he was 12 years old. Well, fortunately, Joe was able to locate his father in Texas. The father worked as an itinerant horse trainer there. And for the next little while, Joe lived with his father. And life was mostly good. Joe liked being among the stables. He liked working among the horses. He had a dog named Mippy. During this time, Joe and his father moved again, this time to California. Joe's father got a different job at a different track. But tension again began to rise. Boys uh, weren't supposed to be at the track, uh, weren't supposed to be living there. Officials found out, and they threatened to take away his father's job. And So the, the father gave Joe an ultimatum sat him down one day and he said, look, you can live here, you can live here, you can live here, but you can't live with me. What's it going to be? It was an angry conversation and Joe in his anger said, well, maybe I'll just join the army. Now, this was a bluff. <laughs> but late that night when Joe went to bed, he started to think, you know, maybe not, that's not such a bad idea. I'll be eating a couple times a day. So early in the morning, he stole across town to the city He found a recruiter's office. As soon as the recruiter's office opened, he was inside, swearing on a stack of Bibles that he was indeed 18 years old. He couldn't find his birth certificate. Well, the recruiter had his doubts, and of course, this was in the days before the Internet. He couldn't just pull something up. But Joe filled out the paperwork. He was told to go stand in a line and kind of got lost in the shuffle. And pretty soon... Joe had joined the United States Army. He was not 18 years old. He was not 17 years old. He was not 16. He was not 15. He was 14 years old. True story. It was about a year before Pearl Harbor. Joe was sent to the Philippines with the 31st where he trained as a machine gun loader and as a bugler. And the boy was in a tough environment. His peer group was uh, older than he was, and sometimes they knew how to live wisely, sometimes they didn't. Joe spent his off hours with the guys, drinking martinis in Manila. Due to the guys' influence, Joe made any number of mistakes with a young woman. And then war hit, 10 hours after Pearl Harbor was attacked. The empire of Imperial Japan attacked the Philippines. And this young teenage boy was thrust into the horrific situation of being in a war. The Allied troops fought back. Uh, America with the Filipino troops were together. They fought against Japan. They fought back bravely. But they're outgunned, they're outmanned, they're largely unprepared for war at this point. And with most of America's large ships destroyed at Pearl Harbor, the Philippines could not be resupplied. And so slowly, the American and Filipino troops began to lose the battle. And Joe found himself starving, hungry, beset with tropical diseases. Two of Joe's best friends died. 
After five hard months of fighting, General Wainwright, who was then in charge of the troops, he at last ran up the white flag and surrendered. Largest ever surrender of American troops in the history of modern warfare. Joe found himself a prisoner of war. He had no parents near him. He had no close friends left. He had no great support group because the troops were sent to different camps around the Bataan Peninsula. And he had just turned 16 years old. So I want to pause the story on Joe for just a little bit. I want to bring the narrative back around to us today. People ask me why I wrote a book about Joe. It's not only because it's a powerful story, it's a piece of our nation's history. It's also because I believe many people can relate to what Joe went through. I know I can. Certainly not all of the the, the horrors and all the rigors of war. Uh, But consider this. Joe experienced tension with his family members. He made mistakes he later regretted. He experienced loss. He knew what it was like to lose close friends. He grew sick. He battled illness. He suffered defeat. He struggled ultimately with a broken world. Well, rest assured, Joe's story is ultimately victorious. Yet the story prompts a larger question, and I ask it of each person here today. I ask it of myself. Have you established the guiding principles of your life? Do you know what you stand for? Is the foundation of your life clearly set in place? When you wonder what to do, are there clear principles that you know to follow? Why is this important? Well, When we're put in places of difficulty, Joe in battle or whatever it is, when the going gets tough, these principles help us live wisely. They help show us the way forward. They give insight into how to live with purpose, nobility, and hope. Well, to help establish principles if they are not there in our lives or perhaps to remind ourselves of principles if we already have them, I invite us to turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 to 15, reading from the NIV version. In the book of Genesis, God is just beginning to reveal himself and his ways to mankind, and a number of stories are given in Genesis. Some stories show a wise and prudent way to live, and other stories are cautionary. They show people making poor choices. These stories are given us to us ultimately as warnings. They show God's good and benevolent character, that God loves and cares for people even when we stray, even when we make poor choices. And one of these cautionary stories is the story of Cain and Abel. Most people, when they read this story, they they picture themselves in the shoes of Abel, the brother of righteousness, the guy who did the right thing. But the Bible wants us to note the story of Cain as well. In fact, in this story, it spends more time and attention focused on Cain than it does on Abel. Cain, of course, by contrast to Abel, Cain is the jealous brother. He's the angry brother. He's the brother who harbors a grudge. Ultimately, Cain experiences pain in his life, and he makes a string of pretty 
poor choices in his attempts to deal with pain. Cain chooses not to heed God's instructions. Fortunately, we can. Through God's interaction with Cain, we see four strong guiding principles of life emerge. So, what are these four guiding principles? The first is this. Follow God wholeheartedly. Follow God wholeheartedly. Let's look at our text. Genesis 4, uh, beginning in the second half of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, five important words. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, his brother, also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, some people read these first few verses, and they come to a faulty conclusion. They say, what's the deal here? We've got these two brothers. We've got Cain, the farmer, we've got Abel, the shepherd. Both are noble professions, right? I had a grandfather who was a farmer. Certainly nothing wrong with farming. Cain is growing probably barley. We're not exactly sure what he's growing. Certainly nothing wrong with being a farmer. And then we've got Abel, a shepherd. Again, a noble profession. Nothing wrong with being a shepherd. He's probably going, uh, raising sheep, maybe some goats. We're not, uh, we're not positive what he's, what he's raising, but yeah, farming... Growing sheep, raising sheep, nothing wrong with that. So both of these guys, it appears that they're both being sincere. They're both bringing their offering to the Lord. Abel's bringing his offering. Cain bringing his offering. They just have different occupations, don't they? So why is it, people ask, and it's a good question, why is it that God likes Abel's offering, but he doesn't like Cain's offering. And this is where people sometimes have a problem with the text. They say, surely God was just being arbitrary. What's the deal? God likes Abel. He doesn't like Cain. God likes sheep. He doesn't like barley. What is the deal? Surely God is simply acting on a whim. No, no, no. And there's two very important issues in these first few verses that reveal the conditions of these two brothers' heart. Two issues. And the first is this, verse 3. It says, in the course of time. Okay, five words. In the course of time. Those five English words uh, come from one Hebrew word, kates or makates. And that Hebrew word is better translated as in the course of time, in the fullness of days, or near the end of. Very important. So really, the best translation here reads something like this. When the harvest was completed, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. In the course of time, near the end of, in the fullness of days, when everything was gathered up, that's when Cain comes to the Lord. 
So Cain's bringing in his barley harvest. He can see everything that he's got, and he knows he's going to be fine. It's a good harvest. Got all my sheaves of barley or whatever they are. And, God says, and, and Cain says, good. Everything is gathered. I have an abundance. I've got a surplus. And now I will give to God. I'm going to bring some of what I've got. Abel, by contrast. The timing here is very important. The lambs are just beginning to be born. It may be a different time of the year when these two offerings take place. The lambs are just beginning to be born. Abel is giving his first fruits. He's giving when he doesn't know how much he has. The sheep are just beginning to give birth, and Abel says, okay, I'm going to bring some of my firstborn." I don't know how much I have. Uh, All the lambs have not given birth yet. I don't know if I've got enough for this year coming up. But I do know that I'm going to bring my best to God. Here I go right now. I'm bringing what I have to the Lord in worship. Why is this important? Cain is giving at the end of his work season. And Abel is giving at the beginning of his work season. Matthew 6.33, a fantastic verse, applies to us today. Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When do we approach God? First, not last. First, every morning when we get up, Lord, this day is of you. I approach you first. Every night when we go to bed, Lord, uh, the first thought I think in my head as I go to bed, I want that to be of you. <laughs> the money is gathered in for the, for the month. Lord, I want this first bit going to you. I want to honor you with my first. Lord Jesus, uh, the conversations I have in my life, let my first conversations, my best conversations be centered on you. I approach you first. The timing is important. The second issue here is what kind of offering is being given? What kind of offering is actually being given? And for this, we actually need the fullness of Scripture, the entire Bible, to offer insight into Genesis. Because what Genesis chapter 4 doesn't show is that very probably the specific will of God concerning sacrifices has already been revealed. Genesis 4 doesn't show it, but the rest of Scripture does. And there's very good reason to believe that in Genesis chapter 4, or actually just before that, an important conversation has taken place. God has gathered Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, the two brothers, and other children that perhaps are born that are not mentioned in Scripture. God has gathered this early population, said, and he said to them, look, When you approach me, yes, I I do definitely want you to approach me in worship. It's going to be good. We're going to have fellowship together. But when you approach me, I, I want you to approach me with your first fruits. And I want you to approach me with the shed blood of a lamb. That's going to be really important, population. 
because I want to show you that shed blood covers sin. Why is that important? Because it points forward to the coming Messiah. And even early on, I want you to be aware, be aware, a Savior is coming. A Savior is coming. How do we know this from Scripture? Two important passages of Scripture. The first is Hebrews 11, 4. It says this, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith. How did he bring this offering? He brought it by faith. Keep that in mind. And then Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing. And what are you hearing? Through the word of Christ. See, Abel has heard God. He's heard the word of Christ. And then faith could be developed. And then Abel is acting on faith. Some people say, oh, you know, faith is it's just kind of something we drum up on our own. Certainly faith is taking a leap into the unknown. No, 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 that's not what faith is. Faith is acting on God's word. It's taking God on his word. Faith happens when we hear the word of God and then we act on that word. So what is happening in these first few verses of Genesis? Well, in Cain's shoes, he's going, you know, I heard the word of God God said, approach me through an animal sacrifice and give me your first fruits. But here's the deal. Uh, you know, it's the end of my harvest season and I probably have some sheep here because, you know, I, I, I grow barley, but, you know, uh, I've got some animals because who doesn't love a good mutton steak, I tell you. But I just don't want to do what God told me to do. I'm going to give God some of my leftovers because, you know, I like to have a bunch for myself. And I'm not going to give God a lamb. I'm just going to give him some barley because, you know, surely that's okay with God. Cain is not acting on God's word. Cain's acting on Cain's word. Cain's not approaching God through God's expectations for him. Cain is approaching God on Cain's terms. Friends, when we approach God, God invites us to approach him with love and with a whole heart. God, all I have, all I have, all I have is yours. You say something in your word? Okay, I'm gonna take you at your word, I'm gonna do it. I'm going to do it all the way, wholeheartedly. I'm not going to do this just, you know, kind of haphazardly. All the way. God, you have my whole heart. Here's the big question. Have you decided to follow God wholeheartedly? So the first guiding principle is this, follow God wholeheartedly. The second guiding principle is this, always do the right thing. Always do the right thing. So each brother has offered a sacrifice. Abel offers with a whole heart, but Cain doesn't. Notice how God meets Cain, verse 5. God looks with Abel favorably, verse 5. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry. He wanted God's favor. His face was downcast. 
Verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, God knew the reason. He just wants to surface the reason in Cain. Verse 7, God continues, uh, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Will we not have fellowship, in other words? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Watch out. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin's always there. That potential for sin, it's always there. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. You must master that sin. You can't let that sin have its way in your life. So God is giving Cain this warning. He's saying, look, Cain, I can't stress enough the importance of obedience. You've got to follow my lead. It's going to go well for you if you follow my lead. But if you do not follow my lead, then watch out. It's fascinating to me and fantastic as well that when God gives commands in scriptures, he does not do so arbitrarily. He gives commands for our own good. God says, do this, don't do that, go here, follow here, avoid this, watch out for this, fill your lives with these things, think about these thoughts. For our own good, God in love says, look, here's the way to go. I love Psalm 119, verse 32. It says, I run in the pathways of your commands, for you have set my heart free. And the psalmist is talking here. He's not saying, look, I I, I sort of like begrudgingly follow your commands because you impose a big heavy burden on me. No, he's saying, look, God's commands are like a wind that flow through our lives and, and we're sailing this ship and If we position that sail right, then whammo, we're going to go sailing across the lake. It's going to be fast. It's going to be free. It's going to be fun. I run in the pathways of your commands, for you set my heart free. So God is saying to Cain, look, do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. It's going to go well for you. Have you ever noticed that many times in life a situation can seem complicated, and we wonder what to do. Now, certainly there are moral quandaries in life. Uh, Sometimes we face, we're on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, Sometimes there's the greater good in in the study of morality and ethics. There are nuances to uh, which way to go. But most often, there is only one decision to make in life. Situation may seem complicated, The situation may seem foggy, but really, there's only one decision to be made. What is that decision? Do the right thing. Well, there's only one decision to be made here. Let's do the right thing. See, we're we're kind of reticent often to do the right thing because there's often a cost to doing the right thing. We're not exactly sure what's happening in Cain's mind here, but, oh, yeah, there, you know, the barley harvest, we got the sheep and the lambs, but, uh, you know, if I give the first fruits, then I don't know how much I'm going to have. So there's a cost involved in doing the right thing. I'm not going to do the right thing. It all boils down to that with Cain. But how about with us? See, there's this cost and this noble action, and really there's just one thing to do. 
Watch out because sin is crouching at your door. Be vigilant when it comes to sin. Avoid that sin. Do the right thing. But our mindset is kind of like this. We approach God, and it's kind of like this. Lord, if I do the right thing, it's going to be difficult. So um, what do I do? Can you hear that voice of God in your ears? Do the right thing. Uh, Lord, uh, if I do the right thing, it's going to cost me money. What should I do? Do the right thing. Lord, if I do the right thing, it's going to cost me friends. I've got this peer group at school, and sometimes they don't want to do the right thing. What should I do? Do the right thing. Well, the third foundational principle is this. Be honest with God. Be honest with God. So back to our text. We're Genesis chapter 4. We're asking, will Cain learn his lesson? Will Cain follow God wholeheartedly? Will Cain always do what's right? Will Cain choose the wiser path? Verse 8 says this. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And even just that portion of scripture is so significant even for us today. Cain says to his brother, let's go out to the field. What does that really mean? What is in Cain's mind? Is he saying, let's go out to the field? No. Have you ever noticed how the pathway to sin can sound so innocent at first? (laughs) Abel, let's go out to the field. Have you ever noticed how the pathway to destruction can sound so innocent at first? Perhaps you've told yourself something like this. Well, I'm just going to hang with my buddies for the weekend. But you know that whenever you hang with those buddies, things escalate. Sin increases. Sin is crouching at the door. Or perhaps you said to yourself something like this, well, I'm just going to go to this website. This website is not a bad website. Truth is, this website always leads to this website, and this website leads to this website. Cain, let's go out to the field. It sounds, or Abel, let's go out to the field. It sounds so innocent, but Cain knows exactly what's going to happen. God's warning has not been listened to. Cain, watch out. Sin is crouching at your door. We are always vulnerable to sin. We always must be vigilant to sin. Sin has a tremendous propensity to increase rather than decrease. It's either our sin increasing or somebody else's sin increasing, but it's going to increase. And when that happens, destruction comes to its fullness. In the text, it happens. Sure enough, when they're out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And here's the great thing, and mark this well. Even in the midst of all this destruction, God has not left Cain. Even in the fullness of Cain's sin, Genesis 4, chapter 9 says, the Lord is talking to Cain. He says, where is your brother Abel? God is still with Cain. Even in the midst of all this destruction, God is still with the person doing the sin. God is still with us. 
Even in the midst of our sin, God is still there. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's kind of a famous line, am I my brother's keeper? I want you to see in that one sentence, Cain both offers a haughty response to God and he lies to God. What is the truth? Cain knows exactly where his brother is. He's dead in the field. Far better in sin, when sin happens, to be honest with God. How better would it have been if Cain would have said, actually, Lord, I do know where my brother is. You know where he is too. He's he's out in the field. I let my anger simmer until it boiled over. It became rage. I acted in my rage. I killed my brother. And now we've got this horrible mess on our hands. And I don't know what to do. Help me, God, even now, even now as I've just sinned. What a tremendous lesson for us. When we sin, we have this, this, oh, I just, I have to get away from God. But God reveals himself as a merciful and a loving and a good God. Even right there, my mercy is enough. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's figure out what to do. Let's figure out how to go forward. Let's figure out how this mess can be cleaned up. How do we know that God loves honesty? Well, consider the story of the two men in the temple. It's in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them, a Pharisee, a very religious man, a very outwardly honorable man. The other was a tax collector. The dregs of society in that particular bit of society. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I give. Aren't I great, God? Aren't you amazed by me? But, but the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus is telling the story. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector rather than the other, the Pharisee, this man went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The question, are we being honest with God? So the first foundational principle is follow God wholeheartedly. The second principle is always do the right thing. The third is be honest with God. And the fourth and the final is this. Live in light of God's justice and mercy. Genesis 4, chapter 10, or Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse 10. The Lord said to Abel, to Cain, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. In other words, justice happens first. Justice will be served. Cain is under this curse. His work will no longer be successful. He's banished from his people. He's cut off from his people he loves. God says, look, 
Here's the sequence of events here. You've, you've envied your brother, Abel. Uh, you were upset with your brother. You let that anger simmer over until it boiled, and you killed your brother. Now, we can't, we can't run the risk of that happening again. So you have to leave this place, Cain. You won't be able to farm around here anymore. You need to wander. That's justice. Make no mistake, God is a God of justice. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. God is a God of justice. But what's amazing is that God offers justice and mercy in the same breath. Genesis 4, 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Again, there's good reason to believe that some generations have gone by by now. But the Lord said to Cain, and this is so wonderful, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. There's been a lot of debate over the years uh, in terms of what exactly the mark of Cain was. I think that's missing the point. I don't really care what the mark of Cain was. I care about this here. The point is this. Even after not listening to God, even after doing his own thing when it comes to approaching God, even after lying to God, even after murdering his brother, Cain still receives mercy. God is still with Cain. God is still with Cain. God protects Cain. God still cares for Cain. And the fantastic lesson here is if God cares for a ruffian such as Cain, then God can surely care for ruffians such as you and me. So just back to the story of Joe Johnson. For a number of years in his young life, uh, the guiding principles of his life were not yet clearly established. And Joe made a share of mistakes. He smarted off to his own father. He lied about his age so he can enlist. He made some mistakes with a young woman. Joe was hurt by the mistakes of others, by the sins of others, by an absent father, by the brutality of a war, by the scourge of a ruthless enemy. After Joe became a, a POW, age 16, he was shipped around from one camp to another, and he soon learned that one POW camp was not necessarily the same as another. They were all pretty horrible, but some were slightly better than others. He spent some time in a, in a camp called Bilibid Prison, and Bilibid was, was an okay POW camp, if there is such a thing. They were eating at least twice a day. They were working, but it wasn't back-breaking work. There were still some American doctors uh, in, in Bilibid Prison. They were allowed to practice. They didn't have much medication. They didn't have many supplies, but there was some care given to the prisoners. The doctors were prisoners as well. Uh, after what Joe was at Bilibid for a season, he was transferred to another camp, and this camp was called Nichols Field. Nichols Field, by contrast, was one of the worst of the worst. Uh, the prisoners there were tasked with uh, building a new runway, extending a runway. And to build this runway for the sake of uh, the Japanese, the Imperial Japan, they had to move a hillside. And they weren't given earth-moving equipment to do this. They were just given picks and shovels and railway cars. Every day, dawn to dusk, it was back-breaking work in the broiling sun. 
Uh, Joe was sick by now. He had uh, bearberry and pellagra and a persistent case of malaria. Every day, every night, he ran a fever. He had open sores on his legs. He wasn't getting better. He had grown. He was still a growing boy. He started the war at five foot seven, 135 pounds. By the time he finished, he was six foot four, 109 pounds. One day, uh, he was beaten for committing a small infraction of the rules, savagely beaten. He survived the beating, but he began to realize that he wasn't going to survive at Nichols Field. Uh, around him, uh, prisoners were dying, and Joe came to the conclusion that, I have to get out of here. And so in his mind, he began thinking of a ruse. Again, sometimes ethics are, are, are difficult to figure out. This was the greater good. Joe said, if I, he said to himself, if I can just get transferred back to Bilibid Prison, there's some American doctors there. I think I'll be able to live. I'll be able to survive if I can just get back to Bilibid. Well, how do you get back to Bilibid? Uh, that's where they send prisoners if they've gone insane. Okay, then. He starts to think. Joe had just a few meager possessions uh, with himself. He had a canteen kit, and in it, it had a metal spoon. Every time he went to the latrine, there was a stone in the latrine, and Joe began to sharpen his spoon, sharpen, sharpen, sharpen. It finally was as sharp as any knife. And when the day came to perform his act, he summoned his courage, took his spoon, ran into a group of guards, cut his arms, took the blood, smeared it on his face, and started yelling that he was crazy. Well, his ruse worked. The guards hogtied him, left him on the ground all day in the hot sun, and then at day's end, when work was through for the day, they marched him back to the barracks at, uh, at the Passaic schoolhouse where the prisoners were kept. Unfortunately, at that point, they didn't take him back to Bilibin. They put him in what's called an ISO. An ISO is a small box, a slatted wooden box. There's not enough room for a man to stand. There's not even enough room for a man to sit. All Joe could do was huddle in this fetal position, padlocked shut. He was given no food and he was given no water. The water is really the important thing at that point. You can survive a number of days without food, but water, you need water pretty quickly, particularly in the hot sun. Days went by, uh, the guards would take turns uh, prodding Joe through the slats of this box. And finally, Joe had had enough. He was at the breaking point. He didn't know what to do. He knew death was close, and it was evening time. Joe was not a person of faith at that point in his life at all, but when he was a child, he learned uh, the words to a Methodist prayer. And he could just remember a snippet of that prayer. God have mercy. God of mercy. And it started to rain. And Joe was able to put his head up through the slats and get enough water to drink to keep him alive. A couple days went on, and finally Joe was released from this ISO. He was thrown on the back of the truck. He was carted to, he didn't know where. He was kind of delirious by that point, in and out. But when he opened his eyes, he opened his eyes and saw the face of an American doctor. His audacious, his audacious plan had worked, and he was sent back to Bilbid Prison. J. 
Joe ended up surviving the war, not to give away the full story. He ended up surviving the war. He came back to the States. Uh, he, he struggled when he came back to the States with severe PTSD. Uh, he wasn't the best father at first, uh, wasn't the best husband at first. He, he struggled with uh, holding a job. But eventually, his life began to change. Those who loved him surrounded him. Friends loved him. Family members loved him. Uh, he ended up going to a counselor for a while. Uh, Joe was uh, challenged to forgive the people who had hurt him so badly. And Joe saw the wisdom in that. If, if you're just carrying around a load of hate all your life, well, it only hurts you year after year after year. So he learned how to set down that load of hate. And then finally, as he was learning how to live by these good principles in life, uh, finally one day, toward the end of his life, he was watching TV, flipping channels, and he ran across Dr. Charles Stanley. Joe described it this way in his journal. He said, I've never been much for religion. Most of my life I searched and struggled, but I started listening to a preacher on TV. He was a smart fella, and he laid things out plain and simple. One day the preacher was saying how God can spare you from troubles but God doesn't always do that. Sometimes you've got to go through the valley of the shadow, yet God walks with you. Well, I knew lots about that valley. So many times in the Philippines, things happened where I couldn't explain it. I don't know why one man dies and another man lives, and if you start trying to figure that out, you'll go crazy. But I knew I needed God more than ever. So right in my living room, I bowed my head, and I made it official. Even for me, the grace of Christ is deep and wide. I described it to my nephew over the phone. The old had truly passed. The new had truly come. I had learned to live by new, a new set of values, and here they are in bullet form. Trust in God. Believe in God. Listen to God. Accept God. Care for others. Forgive others. Change for the better. Friends, you might be in a difficult place today. We just experienced the brokenness of the world. God cares for a ruffian like Cain and ruffian like you and me. He cares for that young man. We have a king in heaven. If you haven't decided to follow him, decide today. Follow God wholeheartedly. God says in John three sixteen, God so loves the whole world, he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that if we believe in him, we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. Decide today to make that choice. Let's pray together. Father, it's been quite a morning. We want to just commit to you everything we're feeling, everything that's going on in our heads. We give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory. We worship you. Even when we don't know what to do, we worship you. Our thoughts turn to you. Our mindset turns to you. You are the great God in our lives. Father, we do want to live by these principles. Mostly, most important, we want to live by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that guides and guards and protects and cleanses, leads us ever onward toward you, empowers us to live as new creations. We say amen to your name, amen to your presence in our lives. Help us now. Help us live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.